Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Larry Bush specializes in infectious diseases. Dr. Bush, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Let's look at the notion of viral variants, a little bit about vaccines, and a little bit of information about the new Pfizer and Merck drugs. Why do some viruses mutate and others don't? Omicron, as we know, one of the Greek letters has been assigned to the latest variant of the COVID virus. And the difference between viruses and bacteria are viruses need to replicate in a living being to persist because they use our nucleic acids. Bacteria, as long as they have a food substance, can replicate on surfaces and water and soil. They don't necessarily need a human or an animal host. So the virus, when they're replicating, our immune system will normally, because some of them harm us, will do something to counteract them and stop the virus from replicating. Therefore, it can't grow, it can't pass on. So the virus will try to survive. It's survival of the fittest. And to do that, for instance, giraffe probably outlived other animals when the food was higher up on trees because they evolved into having a longer neck. That's just an analogy. So the virus that mutates and changes what it is, how it performs, how it acts, that has a survival advantage will be the next one that passes on. They're always going to replicate as long as they can find a human whose immune system does not do something to rid them from the body. The replication, the variant that we call Omicron, is the most varied COVID virus that we have in this COVID-19, 20, 21, and now the soon be 22 pandemic. And most variants in these viruses take place on the surface that we call the surface spike protein, because that's the part that attaches to our respiratory cells, enters our body, and does its damage to us. The antibodies that we form have been able to block that attachment and block the entry and taper down the disease. But this is the most varied variant that we have, the most mutated variant so far. They, they estimate there are 50 mutations in the Omicron. What do we know about the Omicron so far? We know that it's the most mutated, it's the most transmissible, and what we've learned, unfortunately, is can reactivate and reinfect people who've already been infected and who have been fully vaccinated. So this will continue as long as the virus can find somebody to replicate in. There'll be mutations just as people have different types of children and the ones that have advantages will go on and survive and they'll be the ones making progeny. As long as this virus can find somebody, there'll be more mutations and more variants and we'll be seeing the next Greek letter of the alphabet. So that's where we are right now. We have a much more transmissible virus. It's able to break through people who've been previously infected and vaccinated and that's the downside. The upside is those who have been fully vaccinated and those who have had previous infection seem to, yes, get reinfected with this virus more so than they did with the original or with Delta, but they get a milder disease. Now, that could be for a few reasons. One could be because the virus inherently is less virulent and therefore it does less damage or does less damage in our body, or because our built-up immunity from previous infection or vaccines dampens it down. And that's the hopefulness here. And that's the reason why we encourage vaccination and boostering so much. I just want to speak about boostering. It's not novel to get a booster for a vaccine. Think about this. We get a whooping cough or pertussis booster every so often. We get pneumonia boosters every so often, tetanus boosters once in a while. And the reason for that is because we know that the antibodies for certain vaccines 
and certain infections wane with time, particularly in elderly people or somebody whose immune system never built up a strong response to begin with. Getting a booster is just a way of elevating your immune system once again. It's in essence sending more troops to the battlefield. What we do know, particularly out of studies recently published from Israel, is that people who were fully vaccinated and then were boosted six months after their second vaccine, when the new variants came into effect, did better. Less illness, less hospitalization, less death. And that's what we're seeing right now in the United States. Clearly, Omicron's become the dominant virus with COVID. And clearly, the numbers are rising exponentially over the past few weeks after the Delta surge had dropped off to a great degree. But what we're not seeing so far is an increase percentage-wise in hospitalizations or deaths. How soon after someone, let's say, gets the first shot, how long does it take for it to kick in? Do they get any protection right away? Or is there just a time course that has to be gone through before a person is considered reasonably protected? In the studies, we'll just talk about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine developed some mild protection after seven days, but full protection was after you received the second dose two weeks later. The Moderna vaccine, the second dose was given four weeks later, so it was two weeks after you received the second vaccine, what was considered full protection. So one vaccine gives you some protection, but not nearly enough. Two vaccines, two weeks following the second dose, is as much protection as you're going to get from those two doses. What we do know, and in those trials, you didn't have immune-compromised people. You didn't have people on medications that would dampen your immune system. You know, the medications we commonly use for psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis or even common steroids that people take for various diseases. So the numbers that we tout don't cross the real world experience because the real world experience was not in the trial. What we do know is that overall in the real world experience, two weeks after the second dose, you're pretty much protected. I think part of the messaging that may have been off was if you get two vaccines, you won't get COVID infection. And that was a mistake, I think, in the messaging because in the trials, the goal of the trial, the primary endpoint of these vaccine trials was not who got infected, but how much it protected somebody if they did get infected. In other words, how severely ill did they become symptomatically? Did they have to go to a hospital and be admitted and did they die? Let me give you an example. In the Pfizer trial, there were 38,000 people, half of whom got a vaccine, half got a placebo. Out of both groups, there were around a thousand people who got asymptomatic COVID. Now, they were not considered failures. They're considered successes because they didn't become very ill or hospitalized. The main endpoint of the vaccine trials to keep people from getting very sick, hospitalized, and dying has held up across all these variants. What makes people a little bit reluctant and a little bit pessimistic and non-believers, so to speak, is they say, well, I've had family members fully vaccinated and they got COVID. And that's true. But as we saw during the Delta surge, the vast majority, 90, 90 some percent of people who were becoming hospitalized, going into an intensive care unit or unfortunately dying, were not vaccinated. So it's clearly the vaccine was protective then and is still protective against the Omicron. But boosters are important. Having said that, only 30% of people who've been fully vaccinated in this country have received a booster, and you can receive one any day of the week in various places. What happens to the antibodies? Do they lose their potency? Does the body metabolize them, change them in some way? 
Antibodies apparently are not permanent resident in our systems. Why do we need the boosters? What happens to them? Do they get weaker? Do we know? They do get weaker. What we measure in the trials, and if you would go to a laboratory and have your blood drawn, is we measure levels of antibody. These are IgG antibodies. Not all IgG antibodies are neutralizing, and it's the neutralizing ones that neutralize the virus. If we go to a commercial lab and have our blood tested, which is not recommended, they will give you a number that's difficult to interpret of your IgG antibodies. What they can't tell you is how many of those are actually neutralizing, and they can't tell you what is the protective number. And therefore, the recommendations from all medical societies and the CDC and the pharmaceutical companies and the commercial labs is don't use this test to assess your immunity or to tell how well your vaccine worked. If you think of it this way, we have two types, uh, various types of lymphocytes in our body, but one's called a B cell and one's called a T cell. And it's the B cell lymphocytes, which are the sort of warehouses or the factories where we make these antibodies. And we develop memory B cells. And what we can't measure is how well are your B cells primed after a vaccine that when your antibodies do fall off and you need more, that you can make more in that B cell factory. That's what we're depending on. But since we can't really determine that clinically nor in a laboratory, we measure how many antibodies do we actually have out there on the shelf before the factory can make it. They have a half-life, they have a shelf life, and they fall off the shelf. That's when there are a number of antibodies get destroyed. They have a certain amount of time that they live, just as blood cells have a certain amount of time they live. And normally, our B cell factory will reproduce them when needed. Now, when I say when needed means if you get exposed to a virus and you have a factory that we'll call the B cells that can now recognize the virus and produce more antibodies, that will happen. But we don't know that with this virus yet with COVID. And that's why we give a booster so that we know that the shelf is still full, so to speak. I'm speaking in very late analogies. We're counting on our B cell factory and then the other arm of our immune system called our T cells to be able to protect us you know, going forward. One of the follow-up questions is why, therefore, do people only need a one round of smallpox vaccination, one round of polio vaccination, but continuously influenza vaccinations? Are they just different metabolic or biologic entities, these antibodies? Is there something different there? Well, it's a good question because certain viruses are more controlled by our T cells and our T cell immune response. An example would be HIV. Every HIV patient has a robust amount of antibodies. They never go away, but obviously they're not protected. It's the T cell response that's important. And the virus that causes HIV destroys T cells. And with certain viruses, such as herpes viruses, shingles virus, chickenpox virus, smallpox virus, it's the T cell response that's really crucial. And therefore, we're not boosting that. And the vaccine already has created that T cell response, and that will be lifelong unless the virus can destroy the T cells like HIV. In other viruses, it's the B cell response that's important. The reason why we have yearly influenza vaccines is because the vaccine is aimed at a certain strain of influenza and there are various strains circulating in the world each year of influenza. Remember, we measure influenza by what we call the H 
and the Ns. You've heard of H1N1, H5N1. Yes. Humans have never really been infected to any great degree with any influenza virus greater than H3 or N2. But there are 18 Hs and 16 Ns. There's various amounts that can happen. The World Health Organization looks at what's in the Southern Hemisphere and what's in the Northern Hemisphere and decides what's the likely influenza strains next year. And that's what's in our yearly influenza vaccine. And that's why it's not always so protective because sometimes they guess wrong. But there is some cross-protection. Some of those other viruses depend on T-cells. Omicron tends to depend, at least as far as we know, or COVID tends to depend more on our B-cell response. How much we depend on our T-cell response for this, we don't know yet. We often hear of monoclonal antibodies. What does monoclonal mean? It means it's an antibody, one clone of antibodies. When we would give somebody convalescent plasma from a COVID infected patient once they recover, you're receiving various forms of antibodies, just like if you get intravenous immune globulin that we use for various diseases. It's not one type of antibody. It's a host of type of antibodies. And some of those in convalescent plasma will be aimed at the COVID virus. Monoclonal antibodies is a synthetically made antibody just aimed at the spike protein, the surface layer of the coronavirus that causes COVID. So Regeneron, that's a brand name, the one that we most recently were using and that was touted heavily, that if you were infected with COVID, we would give you antibodies before your body could build up its own to fight the virus. In essence, we're giving you antibodies that you would have built up on your own if you went and had a vaccine prior to it. Therefore, the monoclonal antibodies were given to people who had early on infection and had a problem where they may not build up antibodies fast enough. So we gave antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, antibodies synthetically made against the spike protein only aimed at one antibody production, that single antibody. And that was working. And that was good. Two things have happened in the past two weeks. The supply of that monoclonal antibody has run dry. And I could tell you in Palm Beach County, Florida, you cannot get it in any of the hospitals. Some of the state-run monoclonal antibody infusion centers are in very short supply. But perhaps more importantly, because as I said earlier, the Omicron had so many mutations, many of them being on that surface protein, the monoclonal antibody in Regeneron doesn't work well against that, if at all. It becomes the perfect segue, therefore, to the medications, the pills by Pfizer and Merck. Pfizer's is named Paxlovid. I don't know the brand name for the Merck medication, which are given to people after they've been infected. This could be a game changer, but it becomes a very sophisticated medical decision-making and monitoring process to give Paxlovid. I want to ask you about them, but one of the things that I want to put out, and I've had no personal experience with patients who have been on these medicines, but I read that it inhibits a enzyme system known as the CYP45384 and to a lesser degree 2D6 systems, which metabolize a lot of psychiatric medications. So I am currently trying to see if in the research there has been much data observations, concerns, etc., about mixing these medications with a lot of psychiatric medications, although it is only for five days, which is yet another variable. So it's just not an automatic cure. I have COVID, go take this pill for five days, access a series of pills, but nonetheless, take this treatment for five days. And we need to learn a lot more about it in the real world. What do you know about these medicines? They sound promising. Tell us a little bit about them, please. 
Absolutely. So as you said, these two medications that got emergency use authorization this week are game changers. And here's the reason. We know when it comes to infections, prevention is the most important thing, and that would be avoiding infection. With a respiratory virus, is an almost impossibility. The major causes of infectious disease death always been respiratory viruses. The, the prime example, tuberculosis. It's the number one cause of infectious disease death in the world, even in 2021. 1.5 million people died worldwide last year of tuberculosis. And people in this country don't think about that because we only had 8,000 cases of tuberculosis diagnosed last year in a country of 330 million people just because of the demographics of our country. Having said that, treatment is very important once you have gone through all you can to prevent. And we're counting on vaccines as preventative measures. But just as an aside, we are stuck at 62% of the population in the United States being fully vaccinated against COVID, 62%. Let me put that in perspective. There are approximately 235 named countries in the world. The United States is 59th on that list of percent of the total country population who's become fully vaccinated. We just can't get above that bar for various reasons, and I don't know if we will. Therefore, the next best thing is if we can't do prevention to great satisfaction, then we need to look for treatment. And everybody's familiar with treatment, and the earlier treatment for most infections, the better the outcome. The way the COVID virus affects us is the virus attaches to our respiratory cells. It starts to replicate, and our immune system recognizes it and attacks it. But while our immune system, and that's called the innate immune system, something we all have internally within us, the adapted immune system is our antibody production. The early part of our immune response is the innate system. And when the innate immune system attacks the virus, it causes inflammation. And that inflammation causes collateral damage in our organs. That's why most of the conflict is going on in the lungs. And that's why we get such bad lung damage from, from coronaviruses. So if we can shut that virus down before it's replicating very much in our immune system, then our innate immune system doesn't have to do very much work and we don't get the collateral damage. That's the way antivirals work. Shut the virus down or kill it before we have to attack it so we don't get damage. Put the fire out before it causes much damage to the house, so to speak. How do these drugs work? So there are two emergency use authorized medications, one by Pfizer, as you said, called Paxlovid, and one by Merck, which doesn't have a brand name yet, but it's called Molupiravir. They work differently. The Paxlovid, which is the Pfizer medication, probably is the one you're going to see used more frequently. And the reason is because in the trials, the goal of the trial was how well did it prevent hospitalization and death at 28 days? If you were diagnosed with COVID and if you had mild to moderate disease and if you were in a group that had a chance of progressing rapidly, meaning elderly people, obese people, diabetics, cancer patients, etc., and you took these medications twice a day for five days, in the Merck trial, you had a 30% improvement from hospitalization and death. In the Pfizer trial, it was 90%, obviously a much more effective drug. The Pfizer drug, Paxlovid, is what's called a protease inhibitor. That is the same mechanism of antiviral activity that we use in our medications for hepatitis C and HIV, which are extremely effective. The medication Molnipiravir, or the Merck medication, works differently. It's what's called an RNA polymerase inhibitor, and it causes genetic havoc in the virus. So the virus genetically makes uh, types of virus that can't go on and reproduce. 
it makes it defective. The downside and the upside of the Paxlovid, as you said, is, is it has to be given with a boosting medication called Ritonavir. And that boosting medication, which is not used to fight the COVID virus, but strictly to boost the amount of the active medication that fights the virus in our body, interacts with our system, as you said, the CYP system where drugs are degraded. And a lot of those are antipsychotic drugs, anticonvulsant drugs, antiarrhythmic drugs. And there could be a problem because there's interactions with those drugs that can make you sick. So whoever prescribes the drugs has to be really aware of potential drug interactions with whatever else you're taking. But since we're only going to be taking the medication for five days, if you can be off of those other medications for, let's say, a week, then that's okay. You can go back on those after you've finished your COVID treatment with Paxlovid because it's out of your body. The other differences were that the Paxlovid is recommended for people down to age 12, whereas the Merck drug is only down to 18. And the Merck drug cannot be used in pregnant women. There were concerns. So I think these are game changers because they'll be available. You can fight the virus early on. Even if you've been vaccinated, it will still fight the virus and give you more protection. And we've needed these and, and they now will be available at the beginning of January. So you brought up a great point of there's so many interactions with the ritonavir part of the of the Pfizer drug, but but it's short-lived and these are five-day courses. So if you had somebody on an antipsychotic medication, would there be a problem holding that for two weeks, let's say? It depends upon the half-life of the antipsychotic. It might be keeping the level up a little bit, put it through the back door, so it may not be such a horrible thing. We need hands-on experience with this. No, I agree. You know, and, the worst drug will be is Coumadin because yeah, obviously absolutely, if, you, yes. if you raise the level of a lot of these other things like antifungal medications, let's say a Diflucan, no big deal. You know, you have more in your body than you need. But if you raise your INR because your Coumadin is sky high because it's being interfered with, that can be a problem. Yes. If the level of your medication goes up too high, harmful. It can, it can have all sorts of side effects. It can cause agitation. It can confuse things. That's an issue. Half of my battle is not the medication. It's managing the side effects. They vary so much. And part of the problem is because the older ones, between the anticholinergic side effects and the hypertensive side effects, just not enough inhibition of dopamine. It depends upon the emotional stability of the person at the time that we're looking at. Well, that's going to be when it comes to your group of people. If there's a real, when you have a real concern with the interaction, that that's the group who should get the Merck drug because there's no interactions. But, and, and and there's a lot of discussion, even just let, yesterday in the medical literature, that what's the purpose of the Merck drug when you have one that's three times as effective? And the answer is for the person who cannot take that one, right? It's you know, other than vaccines, this is the game changer. FDA really fast-tracked it. Usually the FDA puts these drugs before their advisory committee. They didn't do it with the Pfizer drug. They went right to the FDA because they said, you know, this wow. is no good. We don't need their advice. And right now they'll be paid for by the government because the EUAs. But a course of these drugs is somewhere between the five days is five to $700. Very promising, very intriguing, and of course requiring some serious professional use of these medications. Larry Bush is a infectious disease specialist, and I wish we had more time, but we simply don't. An excellent resource of balanced information, Dr. Bush. Thank you so much for bringing this to us, and down the road we'll do another update. So I do so appreciate it. Thank you, and I look forward to it.